Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. Um, our anchor thought is going to come out of the book of First John. So you can turn to the book of First John. Some of you who are dialed into all kinds of audio realities might have thought at some point, Mike, does it sound like your voice is off a little bit today? It might be. I'm not feeling the way I'd love to. And so you can feel bad for me. I hope I'm, it's not another man cold coming. Pray for my family if it is. Um, so bear with me. Thank you so much. Um, Ironically, our series is called Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, and I feel a little less than the first word, but we're trusting God in the midst of that. Here's um, the thought behind this series, and some of you have heard this referenced already over the last few weeks, but um, behavioral scientists have um, discovered something about us humans, and I think it's painfully obvious, but they've named it the Fresh Start Effect which uh, upon copious amounts of study of humanity, they've found that um, when we sense that there's something new on the horizon, be it the next day or a new week or a new year, um, we somehow have a fresh ability to summon new motivation for things. And so as we begin 2024 together, we're spending a few weeks in this series called Healthy, Wealthy, and wise. And so far in the three weeks that we've had in this series, the first week was given to thinking about our interaction and engagement and relationship with God through His Word. We talked about reading the Bible. And the last two weeks, we gave a bit of consideration, quite a bit actually, to the great command, which is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself, and the reality that if we are experiencing wounding in our inner world, it can impair our ability to love well. Therefore, we must attend to our emotional well-being and our mental health as well. And so two weeks ago and last week, we gave time to that. This week and next week, we want to bring some thoughts that are connected to the idea of loving well in the relationships that matter most. How many of you think, well, in 2024, sure, yeah, I'd like to love well in the relationships that matter most. Let's see your hands. Uh, spouses, make sure that your uh, significant other put their hand up. Laura did. There now she did. Okay, good. Um, the book of First John, written by John, to a group of early Christians who uh, had begun falling victim to wrong influences. And they had thought that these were influences in the name of Christianity or in the name of Christ, but they were not. Um, in fact, John strongly calls these influences of the Antichrist, or already Antichrists present on the earth and amongst the church. And their influence, their ideology was bringing distance in the relationship of the church with God and with one another. And so it was important for John to write from his caring heart under the inspiration of the Spirit to them. And as he does so, he wants to present Jesus to them, the light of Jesus, the life of Jesus, and the love of Jesus. 
And there are so many wonderful just individual verses or even sentences and little lines that appear all throughout the book of 1 John. And I bring your attention today to chapter 4, verse 19. You've likely heard this before, but I want it to frame where we're going today. John writes this, we love because he first loved us. This week and next week, we're talking about loving well in the relationships that matter most. And one of the questions has to be, well, where do we find uh, the source of strength or the source of that love itself so that we can love well? Because if we love in our own effort alone, it wears out. But what if there was a source, a supply of supernatural love that we could tap into that could help us to grow and mature in our ability to love well in the relationships that matter more, most. And so what does John offer to us? This beautiful line. We love not because we have great effort, though effort is required. We love first because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these moments that we will share together. Collectively, we open our hearts to you. And we welcome the sound of your voice speaking uniquely to each of us as we need today. We thank you for this now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. I want to begin by laying a foundation um, for this message by thinking about one of the most significant themes that works its way through the whole Bible. Um, although the most key word maybe appears a little less than you bump into, it's massively significant. If you were part of our church about a year ago, we spent time in the first 11 chapters in Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, which some scholars and academics would suggest that is the first half of the Bible. Now, for some of us, we're thinking, what? I thought the Old Testament was the first half and the New Testament was the second half. Yeah, that still works too. But many scholars would say all the foundational issues of Scripture are introduced to us in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And then there's a pivot point in chapter 12 that moves us into fulfillment and redemption of everything that sort of wound itself up in the first 11 chapters. In our church family, from time to time, we talk about the story of God and five trees, five significant trees that appear throughout Scripture that help us understand the story and arc of Scripture and what God is doing, and also the gospel itself. And in the first half of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 11, there are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that, those trees help us understand uh, our human dependency upon God, that he is the ultimate supply and source of life and love. When he offers us the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's a tree of freedom, essentially. He's saying, you are not stuck in a paradise prison. God is love, another line that First John gives us. God is love. And control and manipulation in relationship is not love. And so if there wasn't the opportunity in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve to choose God or not choose God, they would be puppets. And therefore, now they're in a robotic relationship absent of love. And God is love. And so it would be a violation of his love not to give freedom to his image bearers to choose him or to choose their own independent way. And you know the story. There's a serpent... There's fruit, and there is independence, and creation, and humanity begins unraveling as sin enters into the world through human independence and the work of the enemy. 
Now, that's sort of a basic summary of the first half of the Bible. Once you get into chapter 12 of Genesis, we find ourselves in the beginning of the second half. And why do scholars say that's the beginning of the second half? Because there's something that God begins doing in Genesis 12 that carries on all the way through the rest of the Old Testament into the Gospels in the New Testament where Jesus is through the letters and into Revelation where as a church we've been for a little while. And we'll return to it again in a few months. What happens in Genesis 12? God's not giving up on his people. God is not giving up on his creation. Humanity is not actively seeking him, but God is seeking humanity. And he finds someone named Abraham. He's looking, God is looking for someone that he can enter into a unique relationship with, pour blessing upon so that through this person and their family, the blessing of God can continue to flow and fill the earth. That's God's intended desire as we see in the beginning of Genesis itself. And so what does God do? He finds this fellow named Abraham. Abraham is not this saintly, pseudo, early kind of Christian, godly person. He's not. He's as pagan as anybody else in the rest of the world. In fact, Abraham's the least likely person God should pick because he's not doing anything impressive that should capture God's attention that we know of. And also, Abraham and his wife cannot have children. And so God is trying to form a family of faith that he can bless to fill the earth. And who does he find? Who does he choose? The pagan who can't have children. Wow, that is the grace of God. Isn't that wonderful? Some of us at times are like, I just don't know if I can ever measure up. Wonderful. God's looking for you. Imagine what he can do through people like you. And so the tree that we find in the Abraham story is a place called Mamre. And there's several interactions in chapters 12 and onward in the mid parts of Genesis where God enters into a special kind of relationship with Abraham and he forms a covenant family out of Abraham, makes significant promises to him. When God and Abraham cut a covenant, it's, you know, sometimes you hear that term, cut a deal. Uh, it literally kind of connects to the origins of covenant practices. In the story that we find in Genesis of God and Abraham entering into a covenant together, when they um, talk through the terms of the covenant, that their agreement, that their relationship that they're forming into together. Abraham is led by God to bring some animals to a certain setting, sacrifice them or kill them, and then separate them into half. It's a bit gruesome, but this was the ancient world. And so this is how, in the ancient world, many other leaders would have covenants with each other. They would declare the terms of their agreement, and then the first party would walk in between the dead animals that have been cut apart and would say something like this, if I fail to keep my part of this agreement, may it be to me as it is for these animals. If I don't keep my end of the bargain, cut me in half. I'm done. It, they were promising their life in that covenant. And then the next party would go through in between the two animals and say, hey, listen, if I don't keep my end of this bargain, may it be to me. Now, what's fascinating when we read the story of Abraham is there are these symbols present that represent the presence of God. Abraham is sleeping during this covenant ceremony, and those symbols representing God go through, and Abraham does not. What is going on? God is going through in between these animals saying, listen, if I don't keep my end of this covenant, may it be to me as it is to these animals. And then, in place of Abraham, God goes through again. And if you cannot keep your end of this covenant, may it be to me 
as it is to these animals. And we see him fulfilling that later on in the Gospels, don't we? God himself paying for our failure in covenant. Again, so gracious, so wonderful. But it brings us to this thought of God and covenant. Covenant is the most binding kind of agreement or relationship that can exist on earth. It's stronger than a commitment. It's stronger than a contract. I've done this before, um, but I'll just use it again in this moment. Could everybody just grab your nose right now? Go ahead. You need to be engaged, otherwise you'll fall asleep. Now pull it off your face. Okay, it didn't work for some of you. Some of you older fellows did that trick that you used to do to kids. and like, It didn't work because your nose is still there. None of you successfully pulled your nose off your face. Why? Because your nose has a covenant relationship with your face. It's the most binding type of agreement. And so God is in covenant relationship with people today through Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting, the origins of covenant in the ancient world um, largely surrounded just making sure that there could be peace between tribes, families, or nations. And so, uh, where did we find covenants in the ancient world? Well, marriages. Because if we could sort of exchange some brides or family members and write up an agreement about that, that could ensure a sense of peace between families and tribes. And so marriages were part of covenant ceremonies in the ancient world. Also, nations would have covenants with one another to make sure that there could be peace between them. What is fascinating is that historians, as they study the ancient world, can find no other civilization that claims to be in a covenant relationship with the deity. That is unique to the Bible. Because all the other ancient faiths and uh, nations that surrounded Israel, their gods were so demanding and had all kinds of high lofty expectations of the people. They weren't looking for a relationship with the people. They just wanted food and parties and whatever they figured the gods up there must need or want. And so humans had to just try to appease gods lest they be angry and pour out their frustration at the people. And instead, in stark contrast to that in the ancient world, this story appears of God finding a pagan who can't have kids and says, listen, I could turn you into a family that fills the earth. I'd love to pour my blessing on you. Would you be interested in a friendship? And Abraham follows. Wow, and a faith family is formed in covenant relationship. Throughout the Bible, there are several covenants. Um, I want to just draw attention to a couple more of the major covenants. We have Abraham that we've talked about already. Israel enters into a, a next phase, significant phase in covenant relationship with God. And then, of course, there's the new covenant made available to all of us for Jesus Christ. Now, when Israel receives uh, sort of an upgrade on the covenant that they already were engaged in through Abraham, Moses is involved, and Sinai, the mountain uh, of God, is involved. And there's just, you read through the Old Testament, read through the Pentateuch, there are laws and details galore. And for us, you know, in 2024, when we look in the rearview mirror way back then, we think, man, that's a lot of detail and expectation. But I want to just bring you back into that moment of ancient history for a moment. Other nations did not have the level of health care plans 
that ancient Israel had through its covenant relationship with God. There was enormous advantage to God's people, to Israel, because of their covenant with God. He downloaded to them through Moses health guidelines, social guidelines, things to help their nation have every opportunity to thrive, be blessed, and share that blessing with the world. Now, the first covenants, as you read through the Old Testament, do not deal permanently with the issue of sin, but they absolutely expose the issue of sin. And what, if you carefully look and pay attention to, they do, is they point us to the faithful God who will carry his people if they'll only trust him. Now, from Moses to Jesus, Israel's failures were twofold. Number one, repeatedly, they were unfaithful to God and to their agreements in covenant with him. Number two, at times, and we see this certainly as Jesus arrives in the scene, the people of God, Israel, began to believe that they could rely on their own efforts to fulfill everything in covenant, apart from God. And that's bad territory to be in. We see it often in the Old Testament, Israel either wandering faithlessly away from God or obsessing with accomplishing as much as possible in the law on their own terms and in their own abilities without relying on a faithful God who could carry them faithfully. Jeremiah speaks to this of a new covenant, a better one that would rearrange circumstances for the benefit of God's people. And he says this in Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. As you see on the screen there, it says that time. Um, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now this sounds like, okay, the next covenant, covenant that comes is gonna have some pretty helpful things for the next stage of God's relational journey with humanity. Jeremiah 33 is also speaking of the new covenant and it says this, I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me. Let me just pause there in case you haven't given thought to the word fear as it shows up often in scripture in this kind of context. It does not mean that God's intent is to create every uh, human on earth to dread him all the time. Fear is the closest word that describes the kind of awe and respect and worshipful devotion that we're to have with God. So that, that's just clear. This is not God saying, listen, I'm going to enter into a new covenant because you're not scared enough. And I'm really going to freak you out so that you're like, we have no other option but to be with you and we're scared of you. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about revealing his heart in such an awesome way. And that's what the Old Testament language means when we talk about the fear of God. So that they will always fear me for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will, listen to this, this is a great promise from God. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. What makes God happy? Being faithful and doing good to his people. That's good news. So we anticipate out of Jeremiah a new covenant is coming. And where do we see it? Abraham, Israel, a new covenant is brought to us through Jesus. And where is this happening? Especially at the cross. Now, the language of covenant that we see God displaying through the Old Testament and especially at the cross 
It's a framework for covenant. And it, it sounds like this. God saying to his people, I give myself to you completely, exclusively, and permanently. I give myself to you completely, exclusively, and permanently. As you look at God's covenant behavior in the Old Testament, this is what he's gesturing to humanity, to his people, to Israel. Listen, I will give myself to you completely. I will hold nothing back. I will be yours exclusively and permanently. And do we see that demonstrated at all in Jesus Christ? Absolutely, at the cross. What is he doing? Holding nothing back, giving himself completely, exclusively and permanently to his people. And the sign of that covenant is the cross. Now, how do the other party in the covenant respond? By reciting the same intent back to God. I give myself to you completely, exclusively and permanently. And so how do Christians do that? Well, we do it in prayer, obviously. But is there a sign at all of our covenant agreement with God? If his sign is the cross to us, what is our sign to him? Baptism becomes a sign of our covenant relationship with God. This is me in baptism. God, I'm demonstrating in a physical way that I give myself to you completely, exclusively, and permanently. Now, is there anything that celebrates a renewal of covenant? When we celebrate in communion, remember in the New Testament, it talks about doing this regularly to remember the Lord. When we partake in communion, we're remembering the cross and we're rehearsing together the terms of our covenant relationship with God. He has given himself to us completely, exclusively, permanently, and we are giving ourselves again to him completely, exclusively, and permanently. So the question for you is, are you in any covenant relationships? Do you wake up most mornings thinking about that? Ah, it's Monday morning. I'm in covenant relationships. Maybe think about that tomorrow. It's Tuesday. My alarm's going off. I'm in covenant relationships. Are you in covenant relationships? If so, these are the relationships that matter most. Covenant is the basis for relationships that matter most. Now, what we see in our relationship with Jesus is that the covenant is vertical between Jesus and us. But there are three types of covenant relationships that you and I are part of that are not just vertical, they're vertical and horizontal. You see them on the screen right now. I want to take a bit of time just to think through the implications and realities of these three type of covenant relationships many of us find ourselves in. The first is marriage. By the way, if you're looking for a helpful resource on the topic of marriage, Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage, is an excellent, excellent book on relationships, marriage relationships. He includes helpful things in here on covenant as well. I think there's also a series available online that can be watched alongside that. If some of you might be interested as a couple or with a group of people, you can consider that. Pick up that book. It's great. Marriage, as defined by God, is covenant it's not just a commitment, and it certainly isn't a contract, although some people maybe wish to approach it that way. You know, let's, let's hammer out the terms of this relationship and see if it has. Can you imagine if, it had a, if there were contracts to marriages? Laura and I will celebrate our 19th anniversary this year. Can you, you know, so next year we'll be 20. Can you imagine if at our wedding we signed a 20-year marriage contract? You know, that means that we'd be coming into our contract here, which means if we feel good about the relationship, we really have to keep impressing the other in year 19 because we really want to re-sign. 
Now, if one of us was thinking differently, they might relax in their effort, and that's not a healthy thing. Uh, if you're into sports, there's all kinds of things we understand about contracts. Then you have the reality of free agents and uh, all kinds of things, terms and all that. So it's a good, re it's a good thing that God did not consider uh, marriage relationships or other covenant relationships to be contractual. Marriage is covenant. Now, are there any public signs of this covenant? Yes. Rings. Vows. Um, in most Christian wedding ceremonies, when the rings are exchanged, I, I'm an efficient, I'm authorized to do weddings. When a couple puts the ring on each other's finger, generally I'm asking them a question. Do you da-da-da-da-da? To which they answer, I do. Who are they saying that to? Are they saying it to their um, spouse at that moment? No, they're saying it to me, and I'm there representing God's work of bringing a covenant about. They're saying that to God. That's the vertical aspect of that covenant. Is there a horizontal aspect? Well, when they share in the vows, usually couples will turn towards each other, look at one another, and then share their vows with each other. Now the covenant is going that way. Are there signs of a marriage covenant? Absolutely. And in marriage, just as God established with covenant, the two parties are giving themselves to each other completely, not holding anything back. Exclusively, that's where we get the line, forsaking all others. If you're planning to get married and uh, whoever you're talking with about marriage is saying, could we just maybe alter the language of that line somehow, forsaking all others? That's not a good sign. And it's intended to be permanent, to death do us part. So first, covenant relationship many of us find ourselves in is marriage. Secondly, is with our children. And many of us don't actually think about that. Because is it, you know, is it actually a covenant? We don't have the same paperwork that says it is. But I want you to think about it with me. The reality is... Um, and we do have some first-time moms and dads in the room and some people who are pregnant with their first as well. It's really exciting. And when you see your firstborn, you're going to think that baby's cute. Um, but the reality is, from that moment onward, it is scheming <laughs> to outlive you so that when you die, it can then have all your money. <laughs> so is it a covenant? Is it a covenant? Well, this is an interesting one because even in our Western world society, which in many ways has abandoned truth associated with God, if the average person ditches their kids, like abandons them, neglects, like just, I'm out, this isn't working for me, society doesn't look favorably upon that. Why? Because society has this built-in, the Western world, this built-in idea, no, 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 this is your kid. You are committed to them for life. You will get nothing out of this. They will take all your money when you die. This is how it works. Society understands it. Why? Because without defining it as a covenant relationship, they know it is. Parenting is understood as a commitment to the child at enormous expense to the parent. <laughs> and if there are rewards, they will never equal the sacrifice. Moms and dads who have a baby for the first time, when you hold it in your arms, 
congratulations, you have now met the neediest human being known to man. They depend on you for every single thing all the time, especially early on, right? There is no breaks. Maybe, I remember the first time with Lyndon when we both got like four hours of sleep. I felt like I could conquer the world, I'll write a book, what else am I going to do? I'm Four hours of sleep, they just run your life. And then if you're doing okay as a parent, you help them become a little more independent, but their entire survival early on depends on you for every second, every day, and even as they grow older, whatever they may be able to give you in return will never compare to the love given. Now, there's parents in the room, and you're like, yeah, this is what it's like. Now, the reality is all of us are kids, too. We have parents of our own, and so we were those ones, and some of you are like, oh, I can't believe my parents are still alive. I need, the, I need that inheritance money. <laughs> so you can't just blame your own kids for the issues. You're part of the problem, too. Um, now, in our covenantal relationship with children, is there a horizontal and vertical element to it? Yeah, there is. And is there something we do in church life that connects to it? Absolutely, there is. Absolutely, there is. Baby dedications. From time to time, you'll see it happen right here on this stage. A public dedication of a child to God. And there is a horizontal co covenant going on between parent and God in moments like that. Sorry, that's not horizontal, that's vertical. And there is a horizontal covenant element going on between the parents with one another, and the parents with the church family. As we've done baby dedications over the last few years here, one of the most important moments, I think, is when I ask the congregation, are you going to pray for this family and for this baby? Are you going to serve and give to this church so that we can do children's ministry well and help, help give a good environment for this child to grow up, having opportunity to know the Lord in the community of faith? Absolutely, baby dedication is a sign and a symbol of that kind. Now, third covenant relationship. Who, who is the covenant family that God is in relationship on earth with? It's the church. So that means you're part of a covenant family. We're part of a covenant family together, and it's absolutely vertical and horizontal simultaneously. As Pastor Clay referenced earlier in the service, we have many people in our church family who are suffering right now. There's somebody I'd be looking for from this place that I could see, and they're not here today. And that's concerning to me. And um, I think of one couple. They've been married a long time. They have no family anywhere near them here. They live here. They're part of our church here. And his health is fading. And it's concerning, and I've spent time with them and the wife just won't stop talking about how loving this church is to them. They have no family. This is their family. And she says, people keep phoning. They ask, how I, can I pray for you? People show up with flowers. People show up with food. I mean, read through the New Testament. It's the most eclectic group of strange people forming a church together, a new covenant family. And we're a continuation of that still Today, you, you and I are part of that. The reality is all of us endure pain and struggles and some seasons are almost unbearable. And it's hard enough to go through them with a church family, but can you, do you ever go through a really hard time and then have this thought where you're like, how do people who are not part of a church family get through stuff? Seriously, we're part of a covenant family together. And that 
matters. There's another couple in our church that in the last 10 days has been receiving very difficult health news. And understandably, when I was spending time with them earlier this past week, they said, we, we weren't sure if we were going to come to church on Sunday. You know, and that makes sense. They were in reeling after hard, hard news. And then they said um, they had an assignment to volunteer, like they'd been scheduled to volunteer in a particular way on that last Sunday. And he said, you know, I just, I went on my computer and I clicked yes anyways. Yeah, yeah, we'll be there. We'll do what we said we would do. And so they came to our service last Sunday. And when I spent time with them early this past week, they just said, we're so glad we came. I mean, the words that we were singing in worship ministered to us in our circumstance. When we prayed together and there was scripture being read from the front as in a prayer time, it was what we needed to hear. And the message talked specifically to us in our circumstances. They were so glad that they decided to click yes and come. Why? Because they're part of a covenant family. You are part of a covenant family. Being together is important. You need us and we need you. And that's not just for everybody in this room. It's for those who join us online in a moment like this as well. Some of you are not able to be with us in person often, but you're still part of our family and we care for you. This may be a point where some of you consider how you can make your connection and commitment to your church as meaningful and formal as possible. For some of you, it is like, I'm really nervous about going to that newcomers thing, but you know what? I need to be known in a church, and I need to know people, so I'm going to newcomers. Or somebody might think, hey, I've kind of been shy about going to a group or signing up for a group, but I should be in a group. And others might think, you know, I've been on the fence about membership, but I need to, I need to think about that. There's options for you. Now, before we go on to three closing points, I just need to note something quickly. Covenant is not a prison. Covenant is not a prison. And it's important that I say this because some know what it would be like to have children, adult children, who become manipulative or destructive to you. And you do not have to become a doormat for their ongoing abuse. There are some relationships with churches or in marriages that have necessary endings. And as uh, shocking as it may be for some of us to know, even God himself has been divorced. And you can read about it in Jeremiah chapter 3. Covenant is not a prison. Now, that was just sort of a disclaimer because I know that some people, I just need to give that to you before I go into three things here now. Three things quickly, as quickly as I can. Three factors. With all this in mind now, how do we love well? I think you need to think through these three factors and their implications to you in your life. First factor is this. The covenant versus consumer factor. When it comes to marriage, children, and church, how do I love well? You've got to settle in your heart. Is this a covenant matter or a consumer matter? Tim Keller wisely says, throughout history, there have always been consumer relationships. Such a relationship lasts only as long as the vendor meets your needs at a cost acceptable to you. If another vendor delivers better services or the same services at a better cost, you have no obligation to stay in relationship with the original vendor. In consumer relationships, it could be said that the individual's needs are more important than the relationship. Can you imagine parents treating their children like this? I'd like to return this one for refund, please. <clears throat> What's the store you go to to get an upgrade on your child? 
There isn't one. Uh, and some people treat churches or marriages like this, with a consumer lens versus through the lens of covenant. As Laura referred to last week in her message, her mom went through a very significant health battle this last year. She was in hospital for five months. She's still working very hard through her recovery since. And I remember visiting um, back in somewhere in the first couple months of it and spending time with Laura's dad, Brent, just sitting on their back deck together. And I mean, he was in the grind of the regular every day. He'd get up very early in the morning, go and spend time with his unconscious wife in the hospital, try to figure out how he could help, but feeling very helpless, not able to do much, come home, maybe have lunch, have a nap, go back to the hospital, just be with her for hours. And I was sitting with him on the deck and I was just commenting. I just said, thank you for your example. And loving well, you're fulfilling your covenant commitment to your wife in sickness and in health. You need to decide if you will view your spouse, your children, and your church through a lens of consumer or a lens of covenant. Second factor, the love versus like factor. The great command is what? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that God doesn't say, and like your neighbor. Some of you don't like your neighbor. And you know what God says? That's fine. Love them. You can't command your feelings, can you? But you can command your actions. Is love primarily a feeling or is it primarily an action? What is the biblical view on that? Biblically, love is an action not just the feeling. Now, if you were with us the last two weeks, Laura and I both spent time talking about how very important feelings are. Don't ignore them. Get healthy. Be well. But feelings don't always tell us the truth. And feelings aren't meant to be in the driver's seat of your life. Tim Keller says, if your definition of love stresses affectionate feelings more than unselfish actions, you will cripple your ability to maintain and grow strong, loving relationships. On the other hand, if you stress the action of love over the feeling, you enhance and establish the feeling. Without naming names, not that any of you would know them, but I was reflecting this week on some of the people I went to uh, college with who I found in the first year and the second year very, very annoying. And by the time I was graduating with them, I really, really enjoyed them. Maybe you've experienced that before too. I remember we had a couple visit a small group we were leading several years ago and they walked in and our small group had every generation represented, all kinds of social statuses. We weren't sort of like all couples or all college students or all this you know, sector of society. We were very, very different people from each other and this couple that attended, I, I spent some time with him a day or two afterwards, and he said, honestly, when my wife and I walked in, we looked around, we thought, we wouldn't hang out with any of these people. <laughs> but we stayed for the whole night, and we're like, man, it's just amazing watching these people enjoy each other. They love each other. And as eclectic as our small group was at the time, we really grew to like each other as well. Tim Keller says, only if you maintain your love for someone when it is not thrilling can you be said to be actually loving a person. 
Feelings do not make for long-lasting relationships or marriages, but love does. I remember probably around a year ago, you know how we have you greet one another in the service? A couple on the main floor who are in their 80s have been married nearly 50 years. When you were supposed to greet one another, do you know what they did? They started kissing. And I saw it from here. It was wonderful. Now, when I compare the kiss that I saw in that moment versus the first kiss that Laura and I enjoyed, and that was a great, that was really, really great. But which one portrayed love better? The first kiss with all the feelings or the couple in their 80s who've been married almost 50 years and when they're supposed to say hi to their neighbor, they can't help but turn to each other and at least give one kiss to the other. Wow. Which love do you want? I want to show you a picture. Two pictures, actually. The first picture is uh, from our wedding day. And the second picture, um, several years ago, we renewed our vows. We were in Mexico. And um, both Laura and I, well, in our wedding, we cried during our vows and during the ceremony. And when we renewed the vows, we cried more. And it's interesting Laura cried when she was saying in sickness and in health because this was on the other side of that emotional collapse I talked about a few weeks ago. She had been through the grinder of trying to care for me and love me through the hardest time of my life. And so when she was reciting again that I'm committed to you in sickness, and it was when the word sickness came out, tears came down her face. And I was looking at her, wiping tears at this moment, and then I was reciting my vows to her again. And while I was, it was, you know, it was on a beach in Mexico, so there's wind blowing, and I couldn't help but notice Laura's hair. And I hope this doesn't sound funny, and I hope I'm not going to dig a hole that I can't get out of. But I cried because I saw some strands of gray in Laura's hair. Not, not thinking, oh no, she's aging. <laughs> this contract better come up soon. She's coming to take me out now. <laughs> um, I cried because I realized we're fulfilling some of the dreams we set out for. We wanted to grow old together. And I already got lots of gray, but I was like, look, you're catching up too. And I hope she never colors it or covers it up or plucks them out. I think her gray hair is beautiful. It's the kind of love that we want to have. It's the kind of commitment we want to have. It's the covenant we want to have. Brace yourselves from a, just a great thought from Tim Keller. He says this, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. Imagine that. Be very vulnerable with somebody, share your deepest, darkest, hardest things, and then be rejected or spurned. And then he goes on to say, But to be fully known and truly loved is, well... A lot like being loved by God. You need to decide which lens you'll look through as you consider marriage, children, and church. Love or like. We're called to love each other, and love is an action. And as we get good at that action, we have great opportunity to like each other. Third factor, lastly, the giving oneself factor. The giving oneself factor. This is, this, 
This, this is where it stems from for me. Some of you might remember an old song called Jesus Friend Forever. And in one of the verses, there's this line about just the love and wonder of Jesus, and it says, more faithful than a mother. And when I first heard this song, I was in my later teen years, and I was like, hey, I get that. My mom's awesome, but what about us guys? Why didn't the lyricist say more faithful than a father? And it's as I've aged and as I've become a dad myself and grown in family life, I've seen more and more and more why the lyrics are as faithful or more faithful than a mother. Why were the lyrics that? Because of the giving oneself factor. I have witnessed four babies being born. Laura gave herself fully in every birth. What you give yourself fully to, what you give your body to, forms an incredible bond and attachment. And this is why sex matters. Sex is covenant renewal celebration in marriage. It, sex is related to covenant. You can't separate the two. It's giving oneself completely, exclusively, and permanently to another. The only way somebody can find themselves getting tangled into all kinds of other sexuality things is if they minimize who they believe themselves to be or what they believe sex to be. And both of those are a violation of God's creation. He created people to be good, to be image bearers, to have value. And he created sex to be a wonderful, celebrated thing as part of a covenant. And it's no wonder, though, that when people get misguided or find themselves on a path they didn't realize they'd get onto, in the giving of themselves to others and others and others, there are bonds and attachments that start forming. Why? Because when we give ourselves, bonds and attachments form. In the church, when we think of the giving oneself factor, who ends caring the most about the church that they belong to? Is it the one who receives the most or the one who gives themselves the most? And people can give themselves in so many different ways in the life of a church by spending time with people, listening to people, calling people in need, caring for people, praying for people, serving, volunteering, vacuuming, cleaning. We've got a renovation pro project on the go right now. There are people who are literally giving the best hours of their day, multiple days a week, for, not just so we can have a nice room, so that the work of God can carry on. They realize that we're part of a covenant family. When we give ourselves fully to things, it matters. So lastly, as we conclude today, where do we find the source for this kind of covenant love? Where do we find it? Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus is at the center. Jesus is the model. Look at what he's done for you and I and for covenant. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Where do we see him doing this? What did Jesus do for us? How did he demonstrate his covenant love and commitment to you and I? At the cross. He endured the cross, not as a consumer thinking, if I get through this, there's going to be all kinds of good stuff for me. He didn't endure the cross as a consumer. He didn't endure the cross 
because he liked you and I. He endured the cross because of covenant love. In covenant love, God himself gave himself, not just partially, his whole self to the point of death, exclusively and permanently. And suddenly I think it makes even more sense for us of 1 John 4.19. We love because Christ first loved us. Amen? Before we conclude in prayer, why don't you just hold out your hands in whatever to you would seem like a receptive posture. Again, there's no magical way of doing this. I think it's just symbolic of, okay, I'm doing with my body what I want my innermost part of me to do before you, God. And I just want to pray a quick thought, and maybe you would do this. Just ask the Holy Spirit as we reflect on covenant and covenant relationships. Holy Spirit, what do I need to prioritize? What do I need to invest in? Would you just ask the Spirit to speak to you? What do you need to prioritize? What do you need to invest in? Ask the Holy Spirit, what do I need to do? as you're reflecting right now, please carry on. I'm going to call forward any of our prayer ministry team to come make themselves available right now. And as they do, just to remind you, anybody who comes and today, there's something, a need, a thought, a thing that you're like, oh, I just, I would benefit from somebody praying with me about this. Remember, you're part of a covenant family. We would love to join you in whatever you're going through and add love and prayer. So as we close in a moment, you can feel free to come forward and receive prayer. It would be our honor to spend those moments with you. Father, thank you that you speak to our hearts. First of all, we thank you that you first loved us in the most awe-inspiring way through covenant and self-sacrifice. You've shown us the self-giving ways of love. And as we think of marriage, children, church, these unique vehicles for both vertical, horizontal, covenant. Fill us with your love so that we have the strength to love in the way of Jesus in these relationships. Would you bring to mind through this week that your love is like this for us. In fact, it's like this for humanity. This is the love that we want people in the Comox Valley to know. Coworkers, classmates, neighbors, friends. As we go into your mission field now, we don't do it in our own strength. We need you, and we need each other. As our hearts desire to see your message, your ministry, fill the everyday stuff of life here this week. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. amen. Prayer is tonight at 6.30. We're going to have prayer gatherings like this a few times this year. This is the first one, maybe the most important one. Hope you can join us tonight. As you leave, greet some others who are nearby. Remember, you're part of the same covenant family as them. You don't have to like them, but you should love them. How can you show them love? Bless you. Have a great, great afternoon. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.